Well, I'm glad you could make it here this morning. A little smaller crowd than usual. Our teens and the workers with the teens are out. And uh, it's just uh, summertime and people are traveling and different things. But uh, it's been exciting to work with uh, the young men uh, during the week on preparing messages and just understanding the scriptures. And so I'm getting up here just a little bit early. So I'm going to teach you just a little bit about how to read the Psalms, okay? So if you look at that Psalm either on the handout or if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to them and just want to give you a little bit of how to read Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. Because I know as a young Christian, and look, I wasn't the brightest bulb in the chandelier, okay? But as a young Christian, I'm like, why do they call it poetry and nothing rhymes? Right? Well, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry, and the fact that we're translating it also affects that, okay? So, Hebrew poetry, what we have is we have verses, and when you think verses, you're thinking, oh, that's where the little number one and the number two and the number three are. But I want to point you to a place. Look at verse seven on our text today. Verse seven in our English Bibles contains two poetic verses. And our newer translations, our newer printed Bibles, format that to show that to us. So do you see in verse 7 how there's two uh, sentences that are offset to the left? Verse 7 says, but I, that begins one verse, and then the indented part completes that verse, and then I will bow down begins another verse in Hebrew poetry. Okay, so unfortunately, when they were putting the verses in many, many years ago, they didn't quite understand uh, the, all that there was to understand about Hebrew poetry. So we see, we see it formatted that way. So we have verses, and then we have stanzas. Okay? Now, let me just say something else about verses before we move on to stanzas. With verses, what we have is we have parallel thoughts, or uh, there's use parallelism to emphasize a thought, and so you'll see sometimes something is stated one way, and then it's escalated, uh, arguing from a lesser to a greater. Uh, sometimes you'll see synonyms used, s- similar words. Uh, sometimes you'll see contrast, so antonyms are used. You see it stated one way in the positive and then negatively in the second part of the verse and that type of thing. And so look for those things because those are cues for us. And here's the other thing. When you're reading wisdom literature, you can't just read it and get it. I mean, it's literally made to make you think. Okay, so you usually have to read it a couple times or stop and ponder and think about it. Okay, so then after verses, then we have stanzas. And stanzas are grouped, and in, again, in our modern translations and modern formatted Bibles, you'll see a larger gap between a set of verses. And on your handout and in your Bibles, hopefully you will see that there is a little larger gap between verses 3 and 4. And if you look down, you'll see another gap between verses 6 and verses 7. And then another large gap, or larger gap, between verses 8 and 9. So those are 
ending and beginning another stanza. And so when we have a stanza, there's a thought in that set of verses that's being emphasized, kind of like a paragraph when we think of modern <clears throat> formatted English. But, so there's, there's usually a thought. So if you're reading, reading a psalm, you're going to want to read a stanza, pay attention to similar words and contrasts and things like that, but then think about what is this whole stanza saying? And so that was my challenge to the guys. I said, read this passage and then uh, give me a sentence, a short sentence that says, what is this stanza talking about? Okay, and then that can kind of help you work through the psalm, and you're going to see repeated words, repeated imagery, is a common thing, and, and we'll see some of that today. Hopefully, you'll see it as I'm preaching uh, and, and that type of thing. So we got verses, stanzas, slow down, read it, think about it, meditate on it. It's meditation literature, if you will. All right, so that's on how to read our Psalms. All right, and I got done in just the right amount of time. 11 o'clock, time to begin preaching. Okay. In Philippians 4.4, 4, the Apostle Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but when your parents would repeat something twice, that usually meant that I was supposed to listen the first time, and then I get it the second time. Right? I mean, I think we kind of learned that today with it as well. Evan instructed us that the ladies were supposed to start on the last two verses, and what we found out is that the ladies listen, and a lot of the men don't, right? I'm just kidding. I know, I messed up. Uh, I love that song, and I get into singing it, and I'm not paying attention, but I love the echoing with the, the male and the female voices. It's beautiful. But we have this rejoicing. We're commanded to rejoice, and rejoicing when life is good is easy. But what about when you're troubled by evildoers? How can you rejoice when you've got someone talking you into doing something you shouldn't do? Have you ever had someone tell you how great you are when you know they really don't like you? Have you ever been undermined at work? Had someone say one thing and then do another or lead you to do something and then have somebody else come along and do it? Have you ever had someone that seemed like they were out to get you? Have you ever been troubled by evildoers? How in the world can you rejoice in those circumstances? What should you do? Because the temptation for us, our natural reaction in the flesh, is to strike back, right? We want to, if people are trying to manipulate us, we try to manipulate the situation, and we try to treat them like they've treated us. But that's not how the Bible tells us we need to respond. And today we're going to look at Psalm 5. And Psalm 5 was written by David, uh, probably when he was the king of Israel, but we're not told that. David faced situations in his life where people were trying to actually take his life. Uh, we think even before he became king, and King Saul was chasing him in the wilderness and trying to kill him. As we look at this psalm, we see how David responded 
when people were trying to manipulate him, when evildoers were trying to manipulate him to do wrong or trying to kill him. And even though you may not have people trying to kill you, and I hope that's the case this morning, but we can use these same principles in our lives when we're troubled by evildoers because the Scriptures are given to us in such a manner that we can learn from them. And we're not told that this is necessarily when David's life was threatened. Certainly as a leader in Israel, he would have had people trying to give him counsel to do something, manipulating him so that it would benefit them, so that they could do what was wicked. How in the world can we rejoice when evildoers are against us? I want you to know that this morning, that you can praise God, even when you're troubled by evildoers, through theologically sound prayer. Okay, So you can praise God, even when troubled by evildoers, through theologically sound prayer. Theology is the study of God. What does it mean, theologically sound? Uh, Theos is the word for God. Logos is the word for words. So theology is God words. It's It's a study of God. It's knowing God. You need to get to know your God well so that you can trust him in every situation of life. So uh, before we jump into Psalm 5, let's go over some passages on God's promises and character that are relevant to chapter 5. I think we're going to see that David is relying upon these promises of God that he knows of God as he puts out this prayer to God. So number one, and it's on your handout on the inside, there's the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham to bless his offspring. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed is a promise of Christ, an early promise of how Christ would come to the nations. Now the nations can participate in the blessings of Abraham through covenant, entering the new covenant with Christ. And we receive blessing through Abraham. But the important part we'll see in Psalm 5 here is when he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. You see, there's a a differentiation God makes between the world and his covenant people. And we saw it, we we see it in Exodus 20. Uh, in, In the Exodus, God pulls his people out of Egypt, and then he brings them into covenant. And in that covenant, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And we Refer to that as the old covenant, okay? But he di- he differentiates between his covenant people and the world, and he does that in the second commandment, Exodus twenty verses five and six, where he's talking about the prohibition against making idols. He says, "You shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me 
and keep my commandments. So we have those who will have the iniquity of their fathers visited to their children for three or four generations, those who hate him, those who are idol worshipers, but showing steadfast love, and that's a covenant love that he's showing, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our love for God is expressed by keeping his commandments. Jesus said this, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. So, that's the differentiation God makes with how he deals with people in the world. And we see that when we see the Lord's character given to us when he passes by Moses. Now, now what has happened is the children of Israel broke the Ten Commandments and made a golden calf right away. They didn't last long in, in trying to keep the covenant. But God doesn't judge them. He has mercy on them based upon his covenant with them. Okay? And, and, and Moses is so overwhelmed by this forgiveness, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And he says, well, I'm going to set you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'll pass by. And when God passes by, he makes this statement in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament by the Old Testament. And we will find these character traits in almost every psalm, if not all the psalms. It is the basis of our prayer. We base our prayers on the character of God because we cannot ask God to act contrary to his character. And so we need to know God's character. That's why we do theologically sound prayers. So if you're looking for a better way to pray, you need to know your God better. And a great place to start is memorizing Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, his covenant name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now that's a phrase that we're supposed to then pull in where he said that before, which was Exodus 20. So he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, and that would be, and I've put in there parentheses, pulling in from Exodus 26, keeping steadfast love for thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, and again pulling from Exodus 25, 20 verse 5, of those who hate me. So there's idol worshipers, and then there are God worshipers who have been brought into covenant with him. And again, I, I encourage you so much, memorize those two verses, because they are constantly referred to in the Old Testament in particular, but a lot of times in the Psalms, those six character traits that God has, that he's merciful and gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and then he is just. And now, it doesn't say he's just, but he won't clear... The guilty, right? So he is just. And so those are those characteristics that we get of God. And then David's going to rely again on the promises of Psalm 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then in verse 6 of that same psalm, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked 
will perish. Okay, so now we're armed with this sound theology of the Lord and his promises. And with that, I want us to look at Psalm 5 and see what David did when he was troubled by evildoers. First of all, we see him turn to the Lord with a request for help from the Lord, his king. We read Psalm 5, to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. So this was to be sung in the gathering of the people. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David first turns to the Lord in prayer, but he's having trouble rejoicing. David's struggle is not that God doesn't hear him. He knows he does. He says in verse 3, you hear my voice. So what's the problem? He knows God hears his prayer, but his struggle is God hasn't acted He hasn't acted against David's enemies yet. He's waiting for God to act according to his character. Have you ever had to wait for something? I think I've shared with you before. This this is how I prefer my prayer life would be. It would be like, you know, McDonald's. You know, I pull up to the little thing and I make my request. And like just a couple minutes later, I get my answer through the window. That's, That's my patience in prayer. That's not how God works, right? He's got his timing and his ways. And so there's often a lag between our requests and his answers. David here, though, is affirming to God that he indeed is trusting God as his king. So when troubled by evildoers, we need to turn to the Lord, our king, in prayer. Okay, You need to turn to the Lord, your king, in prayer when you're troubled by evildoers. And then we see David doing some sound theology here in verses 4 through 6. And he, he notes that God will destroy the evildoer. Starting in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David here affirms his theologically sound understanding of God's character and promises. Evil people will not stand in the presence of God, much less dwell in his house. Pick up on the imagery because David's going to use that imagery of dwelling. God hates evildoers and he will destroy them. And here we begin to catch a glimpse of what David's enemies are doing against him. It seems to have something to do with their words, right? They're intent on destroying David by being boastful, speaking lies, and practicing deceit. So when troubled by evildoers, we need to know the character and promises of God. Now, we've went through those some in the introduction, so let's move on and see David's sound prayer requests. His sound prayer request in verses 7 through 10. After rehearsing to the Lord his understanding of God, David now makes theologically sound prayer requests. The first is a covenant-based request for direction. Now, why do I say covenant-based? Well, it's because of David's reliance 
on God's abundant, steadfast love in order to enter God's presence. Again, in Exodus 34, verse 6, it ends by saying, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David makes his his request based not on his righteousness, but on God's steadfast love towards him through the Mosaic Covenant. Look at verse 7 and 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Again, this is a covenant-based request for direction. Show me the righteous way, Lord. Now, notice the contrast uh, with those in covenant with the Lord, with the evildoer that we just read about. The evildoer could not dwell in God's presence. David says, I will dwell. The, David says he will bow down before the Lord. The evildoer is said to stand in the presence of God. David says, I will fear. The evildoer boasts. You see, beloved, we need to enter God's presence through covenant with him. But we live in the time of the new covenant. We live in the time past the cross when Christ came and fulfilled all things and he kept the law perfectly, which we couldn't do. And he died on the cross for our sins and then was resurrected to live forevermore so that our sins can be forgiven by his death and his righteous life can be put to our account. And because of that, when we place our faith in him, God joins us to him, and we are saved. We are now in covenant with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When covenants were made in the Old Testament, they would slice an animal in two, and then both parties would walk through it, testifying that if they break the covenant, then they would be like the animal that was sacrificed. Christ was our sacrifice for us. We are now in covenant with God. So, based on his covenant relationship with the Lord, David makes a request in verse 8. Because of his enemies, he's unsure what to do. So he asks the Lord to lead him in the righteous path. It's been said that wisdom is truth applied to life. Wisdom is truth applied to life. David's not sure what to do. He does not want to walk in the way of the wicked, right? Because we know of Psalm 1. He doesn't want to walk in the way of the wicked, so he asks God to make it easy to see what action he should take. In other words, make your path straight. Make it it smooth. Make it easy. Help me to see the direction I'm supposed to take. He wants to look out and not see a bunch of paths with branches off of them as to what what he should do. Have Have you ever done that? Try to make a decision? And you're just like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And all these other things. And suddenly it's just like, oh, my goodness, I don't know what to do. Well, this is kind of how David finds himself here. And he's like, Lord, show me. Make the path straight for me. I want to walk in your righteousness. Lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight. 
When troubled by evildoers, you can make requests to the Lord for direction and righteousness based on his covenant love for you. But that's not the only request that David makes. He now makes a character-based request for judgment in verses 9 and 10. David requests that God act according to his character found in Exodus 34, verse 7, when he says, who will by no means clear the guilty. Because the Lord is a just God who will not clear the evildoer, David asks the Lord to judge his enemies. Look at verses 9 and 10, and, and note the progressions that happen here, okay? And, and again, this is Hebrew poetry, and it's making us think and think through things. So he says in verses 9 and 10, and Paul quotes this in Romans 10, I think it is, when he's bringing the whole world under condemnation. He uses this about the mouth. He says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now David gets more specific with what the evildoers are doing. And again, note the progression. What's, what's in their inmost self? What's in their belly? What's he say? Destruction. Destruction. Thank you, Virgil. Destruction's in their belly. Now, what's he say about their throat? He says it's an open grave. What, what do you see when you look in an open grave? Somebody said it. Dead bodies. We see death when we look in an open grave. So their belly is destruction, in their throat is death. Pretty, pretty grave imagery, to use a pun. What comes out of their mouth? What's on their tongue, though? Flattery. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading through that and I started noticing this progression, flattery is not what I expected to come out of death and destruction. But flattery is the tool that these evildoers are using. We have a progression from destruction on the inside to flattery on their tongues. I use this definition of flattery. I've read it somewhere. But flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Flattery is used to deceive a person in order to manipulate them. I can remember... I had a friend that was uh, interning at a business, and uh, <clears throat> there was some question as to why it was a government-related thing, and, and there were some questions for budgetary things, and, and uh, a reporter called in, and my friend was an intern, and he answered the phone, and uh, they, they said, oh, who are you? And he said, oh, you know, I'm so-and-so, and... And I'm here, and, and the reporter says, well, you sound like somebody who knows things, right? She flattered him, got him to talk, and I remember he said he got off the phone and he, like, went right to his bosses. He realized what he had done, and, you know, and so they, they got that straightened out. But people use flattery to manipulate us. And this psalm points out that flattery is something that evildoers do, but not God's people. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, 
Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Jude is referring to false teachers when he states in Jude 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. We see the boasting. We've already heard of that in, in verse 5. And then favoritism to gain advantage. They're gathering people to their side. Evildoers are no different in our day than they were when Psalm 5 was written. And David identifies these evildoers as transgressing rebels. And he requests that God make them bear their guilt and fall by their own counsels. Now, we have that happening throughout the Bible. God often likes to twist things to where the evildoer is caught in their own trap. In the book of Daniel, the media Persian officials, they flattered King Darius. King Darius, you're so great. We think that for 30 days, nobody should be able to pray to their God until they come and ask you. I mean, that's big, right? You're like a God. And and they said, whoever disobeys this gets thrown in the lion's den. Now, who were they after? Daniel, right? And we have Daniel in the lion's den. But when the king figured out what they did, when Daniel came out of the lion's den, what did the king do to those guys who had deceived him into making that law? You remember? They got thrown in the lion's den. And the lions were pretty hungry because they ended up on an unintentional fast the night before. Right? With Daniel. In the book of Esther, Haman made gallows to hang Mordecai the Jew on. And he tricked the Persian king into pronouncing a day on which Jews could be murdered. But when the king found out about it and that Esther was a Jew and that Mordecai had actually saved the king's life, the king had Haman hung on his own gallows. The Jewish leaders who used the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus saw their temple destroyed by those same Romans in 70 AD. Truly, God often makes the evildoer fall by their own counsels. So when troubled by evildoers, you can make requests to the Lord for judgment of evildoers based on God's character. But I want to be clear here, you are not the one to bring your own judgment upon these evildoers. It's important to remember how David dealt with his enemies. He did it according to Deuteronomy 32, and I think you'll recognize part of this because it's quoted in the New Testament. But Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36 say this, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining bond or free. You see, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's the one that's to handle the judgment of those outside the kingdom. And before he was king, when Saul pursued David, he had two opportunities to kill, David, to kill Saul. David had two opportunities to kill Saul. Did he take him? No. 
He said, no, that's the Lord's anointed. The Lord can deal with him. His blood will not be on my hands. He left judgment up to God. We are commanded to do the same by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greater David. In Luke 6, 27, Jesus says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And a couple verses later, he says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Paul challenges us in Romans 12, verses 18 through 21, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. That's quoting from Proverbs. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When Jesus was taken in the garden... Peter pulled out the sword that he had, and he chopped off the high priest's ear, and Jesus rebuked him and said, put the sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then he says, do you not think that I could have called thousands of angels to come and take me if I wanted? But he was there to do the Father's will. When Jesus was faced by his enemies, he ultimately surrendered to them. Willing to die for the sins of his people. Willing to face the greatest injustice that any man has ever faced. But God the Father overturned Jesus' death sentence and resurrected him from the dead. Hey, this morning, won't you repent of your sinful ways? Why fall under God's judgment? Throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. As your Lord and your Savior. Take refuge in Christ. Come into covenant with God where you will receive an abundance of steadfast love and where he will forgive your iniquity, your transgression, and your sin. Take refuge in Jesus Christ. David now returns. He's made his two requests. For one, for God to guide him based on the covenant, and then another to act according, based on God's character, to judge his enemies. And remember, we started the psalm with him being troubled. Now he's working his way to praise. And he now speaks to the congregation, but he does some sound theology here, that God will bless his people. Verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. Finally, David applies his good theology to the Lord's people. Those in covenant with God here, and and again, notice the the repetition of things, we can, from reading from the bottom up, we can say this, those in covenant with God are the righteous who love his name and take refuge in him. All these things describing God's people. And while the rest of the psalm was a personal lament, 
David now calls for all of God's people to rejoice because the Lord blesses the righteous and shows favor to them. His theology claims the Abrahamic covenant, which we read before, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. You see, the righteous here are under God's favor because of their covenant with him. The righteous are called to rejoice. So how can we rejoice? Through theologically sound prayer. We take it to the Lord and we make, ask him to act according to his character. And then we trust him. Notice the progressions that we see in our responses to the Lord. We're called to rejoice, to sing for joy. And in God's care, they exult in the Lord. Now, what's the difference between exalt and exult? Right? Well, you say, well, it's easy, Pastor. There's an A and a U. Right? Exalt means to make much of. Exalt means to take joy in. So, Pastor Tad's not here, so I'll pick on him. Pastor Tad likes to exalt the Cowboys. He talks, talks about, you know, their draft picks and their coaches and the players. He, he makes much of them and, 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 and talks, talks, uh, talks them up, right? So he, he glorifies them. He exalts them. But he exalts with a U when they win, right? He takes joy. He takes pleasure in them. Some of you may be fans of the Astros, and you'll exalt the Astros, but you exult when someone gives you tickets to an Astros game or something like that. So you see the difference? And so we exalt God when we glorify him and build him up, but we exalt in him when we just take our joy in him, not our circumstances. Because have, has, has David's circumstances changed from verse 1 to verse 12? Nope. Still waiting, still waiting. That sacrifice that he prepared, which was prayer, okay, because there's an es- escalation there, repetition of the same phrase, in the morning, in the morning. He's praying and watching, but now, while he's watching to see what the Lord will do, he knows God will guide him in doing what is right, and he knows that God will judge his enemies. And because of that, he takes joy in the God of his salvation. David has arrived at rejoicing through theologically sound prayer. David can rejoice even though he must still wait for the Lord to act because he knows that the Lord will eventually destroy the evildoer and bless the righteous. You too can praise God even when troubled by evildoers through theologically sound prayer. The Lord destroys evildoers in verse 6. He blesses the righteous in verse 12. So, when troubled by evildoers, you can rehearse God's character. Memorize Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Memorize those character traits, if nothing else. Remember God's promises in Christ. We're not in the old covenant. We're brought into the new covenant. We are awaiting eternal life with Jesus Christ. Remember God's promises in Christ and then request for God to act according to his character. We cannot act, ask God to act contrary to his character. 
but you can ask him to act according to his character. And then rejoice in your covenant with God through Christ. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the ultimate David, our king, who will lead us in righteousness. He will lead us to follow you in righteousness. And so, Father, uh, there may be some here that are facing situations at, at work or with, even with family members or friends where flattery and deception is being used in evil ways. I pray, Father, that you will make your righteous way clear <coughs> to your people. And I pray, Father, that you will judge the evildoers. Make them fall according to their own counsel. And Father, let us rejoice, sing for joy, and take joy in you, exult in you, because you are worthy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.